Okay, so I've been asked to kick off this series that's kind of going to really kind of touch base next week, which is a, a series about asking questions, and I've been asked to, to answer this one. The answer is yes. I'm actually going to give you the meaning of life this morning, if that's okay. Um, that's what we're doing. Um, but just let me start by making a couple of kind of introductory comments. It's a good thing to ask questions. You're allowed to ask questions. I think sometimes people feel that, you know, uh, in the Christian church or in where there is organized religion, you're not allowed to ask questions. You just got to take whatever, that's it. And um, actually, we're not a church like that. If you're visiting for the first time, actually, it's a good thing to ask questions. If you don't ask questions, obviously, you don't get answers. And if you're interested in answers, then you need to be asking questions. So we're not afraid of questions. We encourage questions. Usually a sign of weakness to not allow questions or a sign of tyranny to not allow uh, questions. But we are we're, 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 we're comfortable with asking and answering. And actually, because this question is ultimately, if it's going to be authentic, if you're going to act with any, any kind of integrity in terms of answering a question like this, it is intensely personal. So ultimately, your question and answer about God and who God is is going to be personal. So I'm going to attempt to answer this question by telling my own story. How, how, does, it act, how does this Christian thing actually, how could it work? Now, it's not a prescriptive thing. My story is going to be different from your story, but at least it will be illustrative for us in, uh, in terms of how these things can work out in someone's life. There was a popular kind of leadership book going around a little while ago called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. I don't know if you heard of that one. Uh, someone gave it to me. You must read this book. And I was like, no, I'm never going to read that book. But I did skim through it just out of politeness. And um, I don't know why if he became a monk, he would sell the Ferrari. Wouldn't you give the Ferrari away if you became a monk? Oh, it's just a thought. Anyway, I'm, I'm not the monk who sold the Ferrari. I'm the pastor who refused a Porsche. That's about as good as I can get. So that, I'm the pastor who refused a Porsche. And really... Um, that's what this message is about. Why did I say no to the Porsche? My, my first car, our first car, my dear wife, was a Vauxhall Astra, a brown... No, 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 no. <laughs> Go to the back. It's, it was a brown Vauxhall Astra given to us uh, <clears throat> by our in-laws after we got married. My father's first car was a Vauxhall Victor. Does anyone remember a Vauxhall Victor? Few, yeah. You remember a Vauxhall Victor? Do you remember the smell? Yeah, it was, I don't know why they chose that material for the seats, but on any day that was, and I suppose they didn't predict warm weather in England. I suppose that was reasonable enough. But whenever it was warm, those seats, that kind of plasticky, nausea-inducing smell. Anyway, I used to smell as well. And our family, my family's own kind of journey in, in, in terms of its prosperity could be measured, I guess, in terms of the cars that we owned. So we kind of started out with the Vauxhalls and the Fords, and then my mum got this zooty little red Mazda, and uh, then, of course, my dad got his Porsche, and then everyone, apart from me, uh, had BMWs, and then my dad got his 56 T-Bird, which is a beautiful American car, and then he got a 63 T-Bird, and then he had an MG one of these classic MGs and all of this. So there was a kind of progression in our family of prosperity, which happened 
fairly rapidly and quite quickly. I'd been working for my father in, our, in the family business for about a year. I was about to leave, and in order to try and keep me, he offered me this kind of drop-dead package, gorgeous package, which was, would, would have been very financially rewarding and included the Porsche. He was willing to throw in the Porsche. And I said no, obviously. And the, the reason that I, I guess the rest of the talk is about why I said no. My wife, by the way, would also have said no. Her private nightmare would be, we live in Cape Town, South Africa now, would be waking up to find herself to be a little woman in a very large, a little white woman in a very large, oversized, unnecessary car in, in a developing country. And yet our, our city is full of such phenomena. But um, my father had worked for a, a large uh, shipping company, a British shipping company, for about 20 or so years. They had offices in New York and Paris and London. Uh, and he developed their antiques division. That was his area of expertise. And at a certain point, uh, the company restructured. They made the classic, classic mistake of putting family members in as directors over different departments that other people had actually built. And my father was, at least this is his retelling of the story on numerous occasions to me, was adamant that he was not going to be directed by someone who didn't know how to direct him. And so, you know, his boss would come in and say, but how does this work and how does that work? And my father would say, no, no. You have to tell me. You're the director. The director needs to direct me. And it caused a, a, a thing, and he, my dad said, well, uh, fire me. If you, you know, you can just, and they wouldn't do it, but he'd obviously built this whole thing up. And so in the end, he resigned, and he started his own company on the south coast of uh, England. And this new company really, really took off. Sadly, the original company, Pitt & Scott, which was a 19th century, they actually looked at the, uh, the bill of lading on the Titanic, and there they were. They actually had a shipment on the Titanic as well. There's a historic kind of British company, unfortunately collapsed and died and isn't anywhere now. But the wealth came quite suddenly. All the expertise uh, that my dad had kind of um, you know, established and learned, and all the contacts, particularly in America, uh, it was all a bit of a shock as I was growing up as a rebellious teenager, the punk scene, uh, in, we moved down to Brighton, or Hove actually, and um, thank you, some people understood that. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the punk scene was happening, it was a very exciting kind of place to be actually growing up, and uh, my brother was in a band called Peter and the Test Tube Babies, anyone heard of Peter and the Test Tube Babies? No? Have you heard of Peter and the Test Tube Babies? Who's heard of Peter and the Test Tube Babies? I see that hand. God bless you. God bless you. Yeah. No, I was in France once, and there's a guy there with a Peter and the Test Tube Babies badge. So my brother was the drummer. Anyway, they weren't very good. They are still going. And uh, they did a session with John Peel. That was quite cool. So they went up to London to the BBC, and they did that. I had my own band, even worse than Peter and the Test Tube Babies, called Brutus and the Conspirators. <laughs> I... <laughs> Yes, it was laughable, and uh, I was Brutus. So I wasn't very motivated at school. Uh, nothing kind of really kind of grabbed my attention. I'd been writing, so writing was the thing, and I'd been writing for years. I mean, I'd, you know, and really was into writing. I discovered kind of Shakespeare um, 
when I was 13, we did a read-through of Merchant of Venice at school, and it just like the lights went on, and I suddenly had entered this whole very rich, high-definition world of Shakespeare. If you can find the door and get in, it's a, it's a very, very rich world to, to uh, discover. And so literature was my thing, and that was it. Poetry, literature, and I didn't like any other subject. So I, wasn't, I, I didn't give any effort to pretty much everything apart from English. Um, won the school literature prize and things like that, but wasn't really um, engaged with, with school. I was first published nationally uh, here when I was about 14 or so in a, in a magazine called Scan, which was part of the Rock Against Racism movement. Some of you are old enough to remember that whole movement, the anti-Nazi league and the rock against racism thing. And it was, it was, again, it was an exciting time to be writing and it was very encouraging to, to get published like that. Uh, I was published twice by them. One of my poems was considered so aggressive that Terry Wogan, no less, um, withdrew his patronage of the magazine and the Sun newspaper wrote this article and quoted the most sweary bits of my poem as, uh, as evidence of why it was a good thing for Terry Wogan to pull, pull out. But I found that poetry was um, an excellent conversation starter with, with intelligent and slightly rebellious posh girls, which was a good thing. And uh, bizarrely, one of my poems got published in one of the all-girls school newspapers, which is really odd as well, I don't know why. Um, but church was absolutely not part of our lives at all. It wasn't it was, it was nowhere in our family. We never went to church at Christmas, Easter, on any Sunday. It was just irrelevant. And in that sense, I was absolutely normal. Um, my parents got married in a registry office because of my mother's resistance to uh, the Church of England particularly, but church generally. The one time we went as a family to church was to my grandfather's funeral. And I do remember as they were carrying him. Whoever, who you know, whoever normally uses these, you've got, you've got very small ears. I think I'm, I'm adjusting it at the ear level. There we go. Um, when they carried my... Uh, <laughs> why was that funny? They've got the giggles in the middle there. Um, they carried my grandfather. I just thought, this is, this is... You know, they talked about him as though he was this glowing Christian. He wasn't a Christian at all, as though he was going to heaven the heaven that didn't exist, and if he wouldn't be going there anyway. It was just, it was such a sham, and um, I had no, obviously I had no respect for organized religion. Um, one night after an all-night party, someone stupidly said, let's go to church for a laugh, and so bizarrely, everyone agreed, this is a good idea, so we kind of staggered out into the light and, and looked for a church, and uh, um, we stumbled upon one in, in, in a street called Clarendon Villas in Hove. There was a, like a, a, a V-shaped billboard outside with a, with a rainbow. I mean, it was just desperate. With a rainbow which said, come and praise the living God or something like that on, the, on, the, on this board. And we went in and it was, it was, it was very, very English. It was ever so embarrassingly moderately enthusiastic. So that was the, that was the feel of it. It was, it, was, it was so English. It was moderately enthusiastic, kind of this enthusiastic, but not like this enthusiastic, and not also strict. It was slightly strange, never quite been into anything like it. There was a little bit of energy, though. I thought, okay, 
uh, you know, aerobics had just come out about that time, so this is kind of a mild religious aerobic thing, you know, as, but very much on the mild side. They sang one song that was, uh, I consider to be <laughs> extremely offensive, uh, which was, um, it was, it was essentially celebrating that we're good, that we're righteous. So uh, coming in and hearing a group of white, mainly middle-class people moderately enthusiastic about the fact that they were the good ones <laughs> was just outrageous. The, the song uh, said, for he has uh, clothed he has clothed me in garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Now, the reason I remember that is because I was so outraged that I pulled out my notebook and I wrote it down. <laughs> I'm writing this down. That's how bad it is. Uh, and it's a Chris Bowater song I later discovered. Uh, he has arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. I just thought, I've never heard anything as ob. Did I just do that? I, it's the heating. Good. So we're going to be warm. Um, I'd never heard anything as obscene as that. A group of people celebrating that they are righteous, obviously in distinction against those who are outside, myself, including myself, who are not righteous, who are not good. I obviously had misunderstood Christian joy because actually... The Christian is forgiven of her sin, his sin, and made fit, if you like, for God, made righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done, not because they themselves are inherently good in and of themselves. Now, I didn't understand that. I just saw these people moderately enthusiastic about being righteous. How can you be moderately enthusiastic about being made righteous anyway? That's another question. But... About this time, um, or at least by this time, my mother had thrown me out of the house because the relationship with their growing wealth and my kind of rebellious teen uh, issues had kind of reached ahead. I had, uh, I, as a 16-year-old, as a I'd read um, the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and um, as many other young people would have done, this was like it's a kind of a philosophy of history. This was a, it's a worldview. This is a way of seeing the world that, as a 16-year-old, make complete sense and also gave me some ammunition about the growing, ornate antiques that were entering our house and the, the, the ridiculous amount of spending that was going on these, these trinkets that began to appear all, all over the house. So I remember standing, looking up from the front garden, at my bedroom window as clothing was flying out as my, my, as my mother just was ejecting me and all my rags. And finally, of course, then the, my guitar also came, came almost in slow motion. Guitars float. I didn't, I didn't know this before I actually witnessed it, but my guitar kind of floated down and thankfully landed on the clothes. But it was, it was kind of a bit of a hectic time. And I, I had to sign on. I'd never signed on before, I don't think. And I had to sign on. And when they realized that I was technically homeless, I wasn't really homeless, was I? But I was, I was kind of technically homeless. They gave me some kind of voucher to stay at a bed and breakfast in Brighton. So I find the address 
and I go and find this place, and it was, it was, it was, it was disgusting. It was absolutely disgusting. Uh, the, the smell of the place, I mean, it was rancid. The, the sounds of rats scampering to and fro in the corridors and behind the, the, the skirting boards and then under the floorboards, it was just awful. And then the guys that were there were genuinely broken and homeless and many of them drunk, arguing furiously with each other. And I'm this, 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 this teenager from Hove who's hidden all his money in his underpants and is in a fetal position <laughs> trying to stay safe. And in the end, I thought, I'm not going to do this. And about one o'clock, I went to a friend's house and stayed at his place, uh, which was obviously the more sensible thing to do. I somehow got myself together and enrolled at uh, Sussex Downs College in Lewis to do uh, mainly theater arts. There was a great theater arts course there. That kind of connected with what I was interested in. And we, we looked at Greek theater as well as, obviously, Elizabethan theater and so on. It was, it was a really good course. And a, a local MP, a liberal Democrat, no less, very kindly kind of took up my cause and managed to organize for me, I don't know if this could happen now, um, a pension book. I had a pension book, and I would, I would get, and you tore a thing out, and you got whatever it was, 85 pounds a week or whatever it was, and it covered all my college fees, my rent, all my travel, everything was covered. It was, it was actually an amazing thing. And after all my, his kindness to me, I do regret this, I actually said to him, I'm still not going to vote for you, though which I thought was so ungrateful. I felt bad immediately afterwards. At college, I became uh, president of the Students' Union and uh, based on a kind of Python-esque campaign of absurdity. And um, along with other unions and different presidents would meet together and then we would go to the Student Union conferences. I think one, uh, there, was, there would be, be kind of like a, a kind of labor uh, party conference for little people. It was, it was kind of structured that way. Um, uh, we kind of led this march out of uh, college. The college shut down for a day as we went marching through the streets and my incoherent interview with a television company, I don't know what happened to it, but um, that was kind of my, my college experience. I enjoyed it very much, um, but was strongly involved in the political side of things. After college, I went to India, as you do, with a friend. And we had some very bizarre and unusual experience and adventures. And of course, by that time, I'd read very widely uh, not just English literature, which I loved, and not just the poets, who I considered to be the, the very heart of the English canon, but um, you know the European ones too, Camus and Sartre, obviously André Gide, Hermann Hesse, I really enjoyed. Nietzsche, of course, I'd read several of his. And uh, so I was beginning to be more interested in some of the German literature, and I found this gem in a second-hand bookshop, or one of these exchange bookshops you get all over India, and it was a, it was a, a chunky anthology of German writing, of German uh, literature, uh, in English, so I didn't read German. And um, I began reading it, you know, I mean, I really enjoyed it. And early on were some samples and some excerpts of a guy called Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, obviously the American civil rights leader. Martin Luther, the Catholic, the 16th century Catholic monk, who it seemed to me from reading what he'd, he, he'd written in his 95 Theses, his introduction to his commentary on Galatians uh, and Romans 
and so on, little kind of um, samples of that. Uh, he seemed to be a guy who was single-handedly standing up against corruption. I liked him immediately. He was standing up for the poor. He was standing up against exploitation. He had a clear social conscience. Of course, there was a lot of Jesus stuff in there, but, but there was also this, this response, this reaction, this strong moral rebuke of the establishment. And that, to me, was extremely... Uh, attractive. I enjoyed it very much. And so I thought, okay, I like Martin Luther. Martin Luther is good. Just lodged there. Another thing that happened was that uh, I met an apparently demon-possessed person for the first time. I don't know if you've met one of these. <laughs> but uh, he was a Swedish guy called Ulf. And um, we were in a uh, like a beachfront restaurant in Kovalam, Kovalam Beach in southern India. Beautiful, beautiful beach. There's a lighthouse on the beach. It's absolutely magical. It's like paradise. And this guy was raving and ranting at this friend of mine, Mark. And I was sitting a little distance away observing. And it seemed to me that there was a lot of kind of strange... Uh, I, I'm saying gothic kind of Christian symbolism and a lot of what he was doing or saying. And it was kind of peppered through his kind of rant. Uh, and I didn't, we didn't know what he was after. He wasn't seemed to, seem to be asking for money. And in the end, he just kind of wandered off in his chaos. And I said to Mark afterwards, you know, that was really interesting. Uh, I didn't help him, obviously. I'm just observing from the side. It's a sociological thing. Uh, I said to him, um, did you notice kind of all the religious stuff that he was doing, that he was, he was acting? And uh, Mark said, what religious stuff? I said, no, 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 there was lots of it. All the, you didn't see any of it? He said, no. Now, just deductively, I had to say, wow, okay, so if he was acting, he would have made that more obvious to frighten this friend of mine, in order to get whatever it was that he wanted. Uh, but he, he obviously he either was a bad actor or he's not acting. And actually, this is an internal problem that maybe he is possessed by the devil or whatever the phrase would be. Well, that's, that can't be. And if he's possessed by the devil, again, just logically, just deductively, that means there is a devil. And, and I literally went through this deductive process. If there's a devil, that means there is a God. And so I did what any normal person would do at that point of making a deductive argument, reaching a conclusion that you don't want. I dismissed it. and said, That's just nonsense. But nevertheless, it kind of lodged in my mind. I get to Mumbai, we're about to leave, and there is, again, another Swede, a Swedish professor, who's doing some research on comparative religion. And we kind of hit it off, and over a period of two days, I had probably four or five hours of conversation with him over those two days. The interesting thing about this character was that he hated Jesus. Now, I had no respect for organized religion or the church or anything like that. So I had met people who had problems with the church, but I'd never met someone who was so anti-Jesus himself. That's quite an unusual thing. People have problems with the teachings of the church or the church itself or whatever, but 
this anti-Jesus thing. No, Jesus is an egomaniac. What? He's always talking about himself. He's obsessed with himself. He's an egomaniac. And I found myself kind of, a, kind of against my will, but defending Jesus uh, to this professor. And I, was, I read this phrase later, but it absolutely sums up my, what I was doing. No, no, that's not the Jesus that I don't believe in. The, <laughs> the Jesus that I don't believe in isn't a madman. The Jesus that I don't believe in is coherent and kind and compassionate, and parents bring their children to the Jesus that I don't believe in. People come with their, who, are, who are sick to the Jesus that I don't believe in. He teaches with wisdom and it, to the love our neighbor. That's the Jesus that I don't believe in. That was what I found myself kind of doing with this guy. And then I bumped into this Krishna guy who was staying at the same, at the same place, uh, all in his orange robes, and I, I said to him, have you met this professor? He's going around, he's talking to some of the travelers and everything, and he's doing this study on comparative religion. And the guy said, yeah. And I said, have you heard him? He's like fully anti-Jesus. I expected the Krishna guy to say, ah, our dear professor, he hasn't come to peace with himself. He's not kind of, you know, resolved his internal anger issues. He's just, you know, and he's still on a journey, but he'll find. No, he didn't do that. He said, just think of it. He weighed in against Jesus on the side of the, I couldn't believe it. He said, just think about it. Just think about it. What's the central symbol of Christianity? And in that moment, I just couldn't think of what it was. Is it a duck? I don't know. Is it a, what is it? Is it a dove? Is it a bread? Is it what? I don't know. He said, it's a cross. Oh, yeah. It's the cross. Of course it is. It's the cross. That's the central symbol of Christianity is the cross. He said, think about that. The central symbol of the Christian religion is a symbol of death. So I, I don't know where I got this from. I hadn't heard it as far as I can remember. I'd never recalled this phrase. I said to him, I moved back into defender of the faith mode against my will, and I said to him, yeah, yeah, but wait, a Christian might say that for them, the cross is the beginning of life, and it kind of landed like that, and it was like, oh, you know, like, like wow, that felt true, can, can true be felt? That felt, it kind of resonated it, it, like a, you know, like a harmonic on a guitar. It was like, what is this? What is this? That the cross is the beginning of life. Now, I wasn't converted on the spot, but I had made a decision to keep pursuing truth. In effect, to keep asking these questions. I'd spent a month at the, in the foothills of the Himalayas. Uh, it's absolutely, on the Indian side, absolutely remarkable, beautiful place. We had uh, two albums on, on an old cassette recorder where they made breakfast. Um, and th there were three cassettes. Um, a cassette is like a rectangular uh, piece of plastic inside of which are these spools of tape. Not sticky tape, not sellotape, but magically the music is on there. That's the scientific, yeah, that's the technical explanation. Anyway, we had three, we had three tapes, and one, uh, two of them were the Beatles' White Album. That's a double album, that was two of the tapes. And the other one was Slow Train Coming by Bob Dylan. Great album. Mark Knopfler's first kind of introduction to the 
the broader musical scene. Brilliant guitar playing. And on, on, uh, and, on you're a month, and you're hearing it probably every day. And, and, and Bob Dylan's, you know, you've got to serve somebody. It might be the devil, or it might be the Lord, but you're still going to have to serve somebody. You know, that's kind of pumping through each day, along with Bu- Buffalo Bill and Obla D, Obla Da from the Beatles. Um, and another song he had was, uh, When You're Going to Wake Up. When you're going to wake up? When you're going to wake up? So th- this kind of stuff is going around in, in, in my mind. But I'd read Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse when I was there during that month, which is a kind of contemplative, very typical Hesse, going from a kind of traditional, uh, non-inspirational, structured Christian religious background, a monastery usually, something like that, and then the journey through various kind of romantic adventures towards uh, a modified, westernized version of Buddhism. That's pretty much most of Hermann Hesse's novels, so you don't need to read them now. That's what it is. Um, But he gets there, Siddhartha, and he's sitting by this river, and there were these beautiful, clear streams and brooks where we were staying. It was absolutely beautiful. He's sitting there, he's looking at the stream, and again, it's like the journey is the destination, that's the, the inference. I don't know if you ever, I, I kind of believe briefly the journey is the destination, not the destination point, but, but you try that with your kids just to see if it rings true in any, any sense. Are we nearly there, Dad? No, no, the journey is the destination. It just, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't work in life. It doesn't work spiritually either. But never lose your thirst. That was what I got from that book. Never lose your thirst. Because if you lose your thirst for the truth, then you'll just conform. So never lose your thirst. Keep thirsty. So I kind of made a commitment there that I would keep thirsty. Go back to England, back to Hove, the center of spiritual investigative life and reason. And in Hove, this friend of mine, acquaintance really, musician, so I thought he's normal, uh, came along, said to me, hey, I've become a Christian, which I just heard as, I've had a complete mental breakdown. Uh, (laughs) It was worse. I've been born again. I have really lost it completely. So, but it was kind of, he kind of was authentic, he's kind of getting his life together. I was continually writing, of course, at this time as well, and keeping journals then. I wrote this at the time. Glenn came around, now a fully-fledged Christian, absolutely firm in his belief. We talked for hours. He really has had a revelation. I am making a concession there. Something apparently genuine has happened to him. He really has had a revelation, which he describes as being born again. But as with most Christians one meets, he is absolutely firm that his is the way. I, I, you know, was talking about truth being the goal. And there are many different angles from which it can be approached. Science, art, religion, I'm even conceding the sects and the cults, but they, the Christians, believe theirs is the only way. I, unfortunately, cannot accept that. I have a different concept of Christ or truth. So, I said to him, come on, they must have given you some books. You know, there must have been some, in my mind, I'm thinking, something has convinced you here. It can't just be circumstantial. They gave you some books. What did they give you? Let me, I'll help. Let me. That was my position. I'm going to help him out of this 
intellectual collapse, this implosion that he's experienced, I'm going to bring him back to his senses and back into the real world. So he gave me the Gospel of John. This was one of the books they gave him in the, in the New International Version. And I'm reading the Gospel, and I, I did a close reading of the Gospel of John. I actually was at one point comparing that the New International Version translation with the Good News translation and looking for contradictions that way, but quickly realized that actually the Good News isn't a formal kind of translation. It's more of a paraphrase. So I gave that up, and I was looking for internal contradictions within the text itself. This is a primary source text, so I'm looking for the contradictions, the fairy tale, the mythical, legendary, singing whales, talking flowers, whatever else that might be hidden in there that's never been discovered before. But I thought this would be easy. It will be easy to find the contradictions and the mythical elements in the Gospel of John. But I was surprised Firstly, honestly, I was surprised by how good it was. I did not expect a book of the Bible to be actually worth reading. You know, it was engaging. It was moving. There is definitely conflict happening between the central character, Jesus. Obviously, it's a biography of Jesus. Uh, and others around him. Some are believing, some are resisting. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to trick him into making a mistake, and it's constant pressure, and it's moving towards this moment of the cross. And uh, I saw there, I recognized there, the authority that Jesus had. Like someone else I just read about, he was almost single-handedly taking on the establishment rebuking the establishment for corruption, for hypocrisy. I mean, some of his fiercest statements were against religious hypocrites. I thought, it's like that Luther bloke. It's the same thing. Obviously, I realized Luther got that from Jesus, but there was this kind of authority. And for someone like myself, for whom authority was uh, not something I was craving, I wasn't carried along by the crowd. I felt I was a kind of more of a crowd leader than someone who would just go along with whatever system it was. Uh, this was attractive to me. What's going on? I'm, I'm trying to disprove this. I'm reading it closely like I would read whatever, you know, Yeats or something, you know, a piece of literature, a work of poetry. I'm reading it closely, verse by verse, word by word, and actually, here is this central figure, Jesus, standing and saying things like, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, look, you can just say, oh, he's a madman, he's an egomaniac, except in a Swedish accent. Or you could say, who is this? Who speaks like this? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness. Wow. What is that? If you continue in my word, you will become my disciple, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you continue in my word, you'll become my disciple, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, you know, obviously, like everyone else around me, I didn't think there was such a thing as truth, you know, with a big T. There were little truths, and you tried to reconcile them together, like I don't know, like Smurfs trying to keep them in a circle and they keep running off here and there and you're trying to gather them or try, trying to keep your ducks in a row. Anyone ever tried to keep ducks in a row? 
neither have I. <laughs> but I imagine it's difficult to do if you're not a duck, if you're not the mother duck. Anyway, you know, so truth, I knew I didn't have truth in that sense. And I knew, although I was free to do what I want and travel where I like, I didn't have that internal freedom that he seemed to be talking about. What is this? And in my head, I mean, it kind of, oh, there was another phrase, of course, that really struck me, where I'd made this commitment not to lose my thirst. Jesus, in John chapter 8, I think it is, stands up in the middle of this ceremony, and he says in a loud voice, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Wow, here was a promise. Here was someone saying, I've got the answer. I'm giving you the answer. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And truly I say to you, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You'll find the truth. You'll be free. <clears throat> so I, over a period of time, I need to finish up. I, I just, it was, is this just happening in my mind? This is crazy. I'm trying to, with my limited intelligence, break this down. But it's flipping back on me. This is, it's, it's doing a number on me. I'm trying to look for contradiction and error, and I may just be stumbling on truth in a place I never expected it to be. I was far more open for it to be somewhere, something from the east or some new thing or anything or maybe nothing and we just party on. But here it was. I was digging for dirt and I strike treasure I never even knew existed. I mean, what a thing is that? What a thing it was. And it really was like a, a personal discovery. So I go back to this friend of mine, Glenn, and I, I say to him, look, I, I want to say, say yes you know, to, to Christ. I didn't have the words. I didn't have the jargon. I just said, I think I want to become a disciple. <laughs> and he thought I was messing about. Of course he did. And then he went into a flat panic, and tears welled up in his eyes as he realized, oh, we hadn't really spoken between him giving me the Gospel of John and two weeks later when I'm saying, I've read the Gospel of John, I think I read the other Gospels as well, and I, I think this is, this is true. This, is, this could be it. We may have found this. It's like finding the most amazing treasure. It's like finding something that you realize, actually, this isn't something that I can just add on to my life. I need to become a follower of Christ. I, this actually is going to change everything. Lifestyle choices, everything. How I see myself, how I understand God, how I see the world around me, whether or not I break the law. You know, it just, just it covers everything. And it's not just conformity, it's, it's revelation. It's this is God's given solution to a broken humanity. It's the love of God coming right to you in Jesus Christ. It just was a massive, massive thing. My relationship with my mum uh, was fully restored. I was able, of course, now I've uh, acknowledged my own sinfulness, I guess. If you'd said to me, you're a sinner, I would have said, absolutely, that's one of my strengths. Um, you, know, you know, so it wasn't like a, oh, shame thing for me. It was more to do with is there such a thing as truth? Is Christ truth? 
does history have any meaning? It was more kind of in that, that, at that point. And after discovering who Christ was, then it becomes, oh, <laughs> I've been totally living, you know, a different way. And I want to now follow him. And so part of that was apologizing, uh, taking back books. I'd start, I had a stack of books from school. I had stacks of things from other places. Taking like library books back and then realizing that the librarian is also a part-time policeman. That, that was a bit scary, but it was fine. She just looked at me like I was mad, you know, because why, 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 why are you giving me, why are you returning these? Uh, well, because actually Jesus physically rose from the dead. That's why. It's <laughs> like, okay, fine. <laughs> so apologizing to my mum, and that was great. And then I went, as I say, to work in the family business for a year or so. And it was very tough for my dad to realize that actually the, the company that he built was going to be a single generation thing. It wasn't going to be passed on, and I wasn't going to take that role because I felt that wasn't my vocation. I'd been called to if you like, get out of the boat and, and follow Jesus. And Sometimes people slander Christianity as like a money-making exercise. It really isn't. I genuinely could have taken the Porsche, uh, and it would have been fine. I could have, and it's good. Some of you guys are, are earning big bucks. I could have been earning big bucks and funding the mission of the church, as some of you do. That's a good thing to do. So it's not that it's a money-making thing. It's not wrong to be wealthy, it's, it's wrong to be greedy. You know, it's not wrong to be able to make wealth. It's how you do it. It's what you're doing that's really important. It's not wrong to have influence. It's wrong to be self-serving. That's a different thing. Anyway, after a year of my conversion, I met my wife, Jo. We've been married for 31 years. We have four children. I've written it all down so I remember the numbers. Uh, two grandchildren. Uh, we're still following Jesus. And we're following Jesus not because we have to, not because I'm paid to, but because we really found the truth. This is something you need to look at. This is something you really need to look at. Because if you find, if Jesus said, seek and you'll find. Ask, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. So ask and seek and knock. And that's what this next series of seven Sundays, is it seven or eight after this? Seven or eight, anyway. Why don't you just make a decision? Let this be the decision. I'm going to come and listen to each one of these questions being asked. I'm going to do the investigation. There came a point in my own thinking where I had to make a decision. Do I enter, not the Christian faith, but a, a thoroughgoing investigation of whether these things are so, or do I back away? And I felt that if I backed away in all honesty, in integrity, I know I haven't really had a proper look at the Christian faith. So I'd be kind of rejecting it, kind of without, and I knew in myself, without really going there. Sometimes we don't go there because we're nervous of the ramifications or the consequences. Just put that to one side. If, if there's a way of you finding the truth, go there. And, you know, we and God will help you sort the rest out. That's it. God loves you. He sent Christ for you. That's the truth I discovered. 
And Jesus, the perfect one, died on the cross, kind of in an exchange. His perfection for our imperfection. He died on the cross for our sins, taking our punishment, and he rose again from the dead, and he's alive now. And so that exchange can happen through faith, simple faith. And when you put your trust in Christ, something happens in you. There's a transformation that can happen in you that changes everything, changes how you live, how you respond, and who you want to be. Amen? So should we stand? I'm going to pray. The band are going to sing. Is that what you just said to me? Okay. I just want to pray first, if that's okay. Just a short prayer. Thanks for being here. Don't let this be your last visit. Keep pressing. You've got to find out if this is true or not. You, you can't just say, ah, you know, you've got to press in. Lord Jesus, thank you for the reality that you came. Thank you for who you are. I pray for every single one of us, whatever our background, for those who had the amazing privilege of being raised in Christian families, as well as for those of us who had the disadvantage of being in the, in the wilderness. I pray, God, that you would help us to come to you and know you. I pray for any who are seeking or are hurting in their lives today, that they would find Christ and be transformed by him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It really is the best decision you could make, and it's the best discovery you could make as well. God bless.